0: Well, As we think about missions and we think about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not have immediately connected those two, but the Bible does uh, over and over throughout its pages and maybe most specifically in Acts chapter 1 when the Lord Jesus, as He is raised up into heaven, commissions His disciples to go into all of the world and to do so with the gospel of the Lord Jesus upon their lips. As we turn to a passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 10, that may not immediately look like it has much to do with the reign of Christ, or to do with missions, I think that you'll be surprised. Because the Lord is doing something marvelous within what may be one of the most difficult passages of Scripture, at least to read, if not to preach on. Let's look together at God's Word from Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born of them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, and Madai; Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Akanaz, Ripheth, and Togamah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dunanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, Sabta, Ramah and Sabtika, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth-ir, and Kala, and Raisin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphatuhim, Parthasum, Kalisahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphatorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemarites, the Hamathites. And afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations." To Shem also the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aparcheshad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan fathered Almadad, Shaleth, Hazamaravith, Jera, Hadoram, Uzel, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobib. For these are the sons of Joktan, the territory in which they lived from Mesha in the direction of Sephar. The hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, and their lands and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we trust that every dot and stroke of your Word is your Word. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We desire to know the intended instruction from this Word. And we would desire now your Spirit to grant to us illumination that we would know in heart the truth of that which you seek to speak to us and that we would be changed by it for your glory. We want to serve you. We want to know you. And we want in every way to be used by you. Come now and use these words for your purposes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told uh, one of you right before the service that the hardest part of the sermon is just reading the text today. I will say that the, um, I'm not sure I read the text the same this time around <laughs> as I did in the first service, and be totally sure that it's exactly the same. It just is what it is, my friends, today. I was told by one of my seminary professors, when you don't know how to pronounce something, just do so with authority. <laughs> I hope that you were convinced as I was reading through Genesis chapter 10. We have a book this morning on the book table called Devoted. Subtitle is Great Men and Their Godly Moms. Couple of books on the book table, great books. This one's wonderful. It's on the stories of of the moms that stand behind some of the great Christian leaders in yesteryear. and like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Charles Hodge and St. Augustine. Many of you will know the story of Monica. But most of these stories you probably will be unfamiliar with, and so I urge them upon you. I think that you'll be greatly encouraged by the fact that these praying faithful mothers behind these men were in many ways the instrument that God used to bring transformation to their own heart in the fulfillment of the call that the Lord had on their lives. It's a reminder of the fact that we don't make ourselves, but it is the generations that go before us and the grace as God uses those generations that brings us into who we are and to who it is that we are going to become. That must have been what was on Moses' mind as he's pulling together this, this table of nations, this list of names and sons and all of the nations that are represented. Because as Moses writes... In Genesis chapter 10, he's walking with the people of Israel. They are out of Egypt, on their way to the promised land. They're in the wilderness. And as they're in the wilderness, looking towards answering God's call on the future and even daily living by faith, they needed to know where it is that they came from. They needed to know what it is that God was up to, where it is that he had promised and thus where it is that he was going to take them. He wanted them to know the forces that were giving shape to who they are and where it is that they would ultimately be led. You see, this chapter is not merely a list of arcane and almost unpronounceable names. This is a carefully crafted Theologically rich unfolding of redemptive promise. I realize it might not look like that on the surface, but what we have here are bloodlines bloodlines of men and nations. And we have been told since Genesis 3.15 when we heard that first telling of the gospel of the seed of the woman that will crush the seed of the serpent that we are to be reading the book of Genesis with these two lines, these two seeds or these sons that would come forth. We're to be looking to them with that eye. And what we see in Genesis chapter 10 is that the Lord continues To unfold for us his pattern of redemption. He does it in the context of Genesis 10 with these three sons of Noah. These three sons of Noah who we looked at last week together in Genesis chapter 9. In that unsavory, unpleasant moment of Noah's drunkenness and nakedness in the tent. You'll remember his three sons all make an appearance. This Ham, Sham, and Japheth, this Ham who originally saw his father in his shame and then ridiculed him. And as it were uncovered his nakedness further by going to tell his other two brothers so that they too could enter into the ridicule and the mockery with him. But those other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, didn't see it that way at all. Covering their father's nakedness, not even willing to look upon it, walked in backwards with a garment upon their shoulders and dropped it on their father in order to give to him the respect and to cover, as it were, the shame that he had displayed. In this passage, we see that that story, in so many ways, gives shape to this table of nations because these three sons are actually the focal point of this genealogy. You'll see in the context of Genesis chapter 10, each of these sons mentioned, verse 2, the sons of Japheth, verse 6, the sons of Ham, and verse 21, to Shem also. These three sons are the organizing structure for this genealogical record, this table of nations. It would probably be appropriate just since those are the organizing structures of this this genealogy that we look at each of these sons' genealogy just for a moment to get a taste of what it is that's trying to be communicated to us from these particular men. Let's look first at Japheth, verses 2 through 5. These descendants of Japheth who are listed here in these few verses are those which settled on the outermost regions of the known world at the given time during Moses' lifetime. One scholar actually referred to those who are from uh, the lineage of Japheth as those who are dwelling on the hinterlands of the known world. These seven sons of Japheth produce 14 nations. And these 14 nations are scattered across what historians call the Indo-European landscape. That is the land that we've come to know as Europe. The land that is goes as far northern east into Asia and as far southeast into northern India. Uh, these... Um, these Japheth tribes and clans and languages, these sons as they dwelt in built up cities, were those that were furthest away from the people of Israel. The outer margins of the known world and thus they very rarely show up in the telling of Scripture. In fact, as we look at the story of Israel more and more crystallized through the Old Testament, some of these names never appear again. But that can't be said of the names that are described from the line of Ham. In verses 6 through 20, the nations arising out of the line of Ham are all too familiar to the people of Israel. If Japheth's nations are the outer edges or margins of the known world, now we're zeroing in on the nations that are surrounding Israel, the nations that are closer to home, nations like Egypt. Philistia, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Babylonians. Uh, These are names we're accustomed to hearing as we read through the scripture because they're always a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. They saddle up right next to the promised land, some of them even dwelling within the promised land and on its outer edges. And so we're used to hearing their names. These were the kinds of people who were normally battling and sieging against Israel. If we could put it this way, they were probably on Israel's most wanted list. These were the countries they'd like to see just go away. And then in verses 21 to 31, we see the descendants of Shem. They're the last of the list that's given to us here in the table of nations. They're listed last because they really are the focal point of the text. These are the Semitic peoples, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans stretching across Mesopotamia. These are the ones right to the center of where the people of Israel ultimately would emerge from. In fact, we see the lineage from which the people of Israel would come from in the descendants of Shem. It's there in verse 24, listed under the word Eber. The man Eber is the root for the word Hebrew. It's the Hebrews. The people who would become the Israelites are being described from the line of Shem. Now we will remember this going back to last week together when we considered the story at the end of Genesis chapter 9. When it was Ham who had uh, made an embarrassment of his father and had made a mockery of him in his drunkenness and nakedness. And it was Shem and Japheth who ultimately covered their father that Noah, the preacher of righteousness as he is described would bring down curses and blessings on those sons to the generations below them. Curses extended to Ham for the dishonor that he showed and blessings extended through Shem for the honor that he sowed as well as Japheth who is described as those who will dwell in the tents of the tribe of Shem. Now the recognition is that in the text of Scripture we're seeing an unfolding of those curses and blessings coming out of Genesis chapter 9 right here already in Genesis chapter 10. We're going to begin to see unfold blessings and curses. We might put it this way. We're going to see the seed of the serpent and we're going to see the seed of the woman arise in the midst of this genealogy. But one of the most significant kind of sitting on the surface aspects of Genesis chapter 10 is what we have already seen commanded by God at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9. When we looked at Genesis 9, we said Noah was a second Adam figure. Uh, We said that he received from the Lord the very mandate that Adam himself received when he was created in the image of God in Genesis 1, 26-28. God had said to Adam, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's what we often refer to as the creation mandate. Well, Noah had received that same declaration in Genesis 9-1. Soon as he emerged from from the flood, The water now completely washed away, now walking on dry land, reestablishing the world, there now to repopulate the world. God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We saw so many parallels with Noah and his uh, reflection of being a second Adam type figure. But here's one of the things I want you to notice at the beginning of Genesis chapter 10. The world is full. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 and the command to be fruitful and multiply has taken off by the beginning of Genesis chapter 10 verse 1. And what we're seeing is a fulfillment of the command that had already been given to Noah through his sons Ham, Shem, and Japheth. How do we know that it's grown? How significant is it? Well, the genealogy, the table of nations given to us here, is actually listed out. If you trace the nations connected to each of these names, guess how many there are? 70 nations. Now, if you've learned anything so far in our study of Genesis, you know that they, Genesis doesn't just simply throw out numbers for numbers' sake. It often is seeking to do something theologically with those numbers. Seventy as a multiple of ten and a multiple of seven. Two numbers of perfection often used in the Scripture is speaking to us of the fullness of the world. The world has come back to its population It's grown since the time of the flood. The command to be fruitful and multiply has in many respects been fulfilled by the opening of Genesis chapter 10. Now that's a lesson for us. Because when we read the scriptures, we often read it one page right after another. And we think to ourselves that there are short periods of time between the two pages. Not so. Not between Genesis 9 and Genesis 10. There's reason to believe that generation after generation after generation after generation has gone by that are now being recounted for us in Genesis chapter 10. So much so that the population of the world has increased significantly since the time of the flood. The fullness has begun to take place. But this unity, this repopulation also causes us a question if we're reading through the text. Because there's something different that we didn't see in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 that we see here in Genesis chapter 10. There's significant differences. It's the kind of differences that we see noticed in verse 5 of the text, in verse 20 of the text, in verse 31 of the text, at the end of the various sections of genealogy in the table of nations. We're, we hear this division that the people are organized according to their clans, their languages, lands, and nations. Four descriptors are given to us, verse 5, verse 20, and at the end of the passage in verse 31, clans, languages, lands, and nations. Now, the reason that's important is because we haven't heard anything about these kinds of things up to this moment in the book of Genesis. If you were just reading through the book of Genesis, you haven't heard about different languages. You had heard about different cultures. You had heard about different lands or nations. That has not been the focus of the book of Genesis up till we get to Genesis chapter 10. And all of a sudden, the table of nations are organized according to these subgroups, ethnicities, cultures, and languages. There's a dizzying complexity that has now arisen post the flood. What is going on? Well, to answer that question, we're going to get there in the long form next week through Genesis chapter 11 when we get to that story well-known, as many of you know, the Tower of Babel. We'll get to the Tower of Babel story and we'll begin to see why it is that clans and languages and cultures are distinct. And we begin to see very different, significant differences between groups of people. Want to note here is that Genesis 10, though coming before Genesis 11, is actually recounting a life that is after Genesis 11. It's recounting the world post the Tower of Babel. It comes before it to set up the story of the Tower of Babel, but chronologically, chapter 10 is actually before the story of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 10 is setting us up, to understand and to actually ask the question, why are there so many differences between languages and clans and peoples and nations? And We'll get there in the long form when we look at the Tower of Babel next week. But I want you to see two things that help us get there a little bit today in Genesis chapter 10. And I want to just remind you of something we said well, I don't know, three, four, five weeks ago now when we looked at Genesis chapter 5 together and we looked at that genealogy, we said that genealogies in the Scripture have a pattern to them. You know, we're used to, as some of us remember reading in the, right, the King James and there would be all those begats, right? You'd come through the list and so-and-so begat so-and-so and such-and-such and, and then they begat so-and-so and such-and-such and it would just continue. Except that in Genesis 5, we saw there were some There were some oddities or some anomalies to the way in which it was recorded. And when something was a little different than the pattern that was typical in the genealogy, the text is actually teaching us to draw into it. It's saying, look here. There's something to find. There's some treasure here. There's a story to unfold. And we looked at the story of Lamech. We looked at that one who was of the line of Cain who would now come and give revenge seven times over the revenge that Cain would give. And we begin to drill into the narrative of that story and we begin to realize that's what's leading us to the flood. The nations have become so violent and overrun with sin and wickedness. Well, similarly, there are two oddities in this particular retelling of the table of nations. The first one you find in verses 8 through 11. And we find it in the line of Ham." and I want to see if you see anything that strikes you as familiar. The names are coming one after another, as we begin in verses eight, we um, begin in verses six and seven, but as we come to eight, we come to this name, sinister as it even sounds, this name, Nimrod. He's described as one who is a mighty hunter. A man who was violent. A mighty man, as he's described. Sounds sort of similar to the language of Genesis chapter 6. The language of even the Nephilim that we looked at in that passage. The mighty men of renown. The violent men from of old. It's the language here of Nimrod. He's a mighty man. He's a hunter. Now, when I say hunting, I'm in middle Tennessee. We think deer Think turkey. I need someone right now to hunt an armadillo out of my backyard. That comes and digs up my grass at night. You can come and see me after church if you'd like to serve me in this way. <laughs> that is not what we're talking about in this text. We're talking about a man who hunted other men. This is a man of of a tyrant nature, a violent, bloodthirsty king. And he did it, notice, before the Lord. And we could read that and think, oh, isn't that sweet? I mean, he did it before the Lord. No, no, no. This is a man who knows that he's brazen before the Almighty God, and he could care less. He will kill and he will take the image of God from others, that which was not Now, how do we know that this was the Spirit? Well, anyone's name like Nimrod, which means let us rebel, should be clue enough. And if you'll notice in verse 10 of this table of nations, Nimrod is known for the beginning of the foundation of what peoples and nation? Babel. The very one in which we will study next week together when we turn the page to Genesis chapter 11. A nation that will be known for rebellion and defiance to the Lord. Now in the same way you also see in the context of this passage an oddity, a second change when we come to the line of Shem. Notice it's there in verse 24. Verse 24, the word Eber, as we mentioned a second ago, the root word for the word Hebrew is mentioned here as the nation of Israel, the people from which the nation of Israel will emerge from. And notice that there are two sons that are given to Eber, Peleg and Joktan. And notice in verse 25 that Peleg lived in the days that the earth was divided. Very unusual Marker in the middle of this table of nations, is this note about the days when the earth was divided. Now, as you might imagine, many a PhD in theology has been written in and around the table of nations here in Genesis chapter 10, and much ink spilt here on Peleg specifically and what it is that this actually means i remember uh, someone teaching me even as a child that this this meant basically that there was one landmass in the world and all the continents were together and then post the flood there was there was all kinds of erosion and then there was the waters reerose and it separated the lands and can't you see how africa kind of looks like it was a puzzle piece with south america at some point and now they're separated from each other and they could have been together and that's Probably what it means here in Genesis 10 when Peleg lived during the time of the earth being divided. Well, I guess that's possible um, that that's the case. But if we were to take context seriously, Um, What's happened before in Genesis 9 and what's going to happen later in Genesis 11 where we see the separation and the divisions of the people on the earth, it's probably more likely that this note, based upon the fact we've already talked about Nimrod, is Peleg lived during the time of Babel. He lived during the time of Nimrod when the nations on earth were divided and dispersed across the world according to clans, according to languages, according to geography. That he was there when the judgment of the Lord came down upon the tower of Babel. Peleg, one who was a follower, who arose out of the lineage of Eber, one who is of the line that would emerge as his great-great-great-grandson, one by the name of Abram, that we will read about in Genesis chapter 12. Peleg's great-great-great-grandson, Abram, would become known as Abraham, this father of many nations. And we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that this Abraham will be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. One of the things that's fascinating about Genesis chapter 10 is it sets us up to enter into Genesis chapter 11 as we understand the Tower of Babel moment and we understand what it is that took place under Nimrod's Um, kingship, bloodthirsty as it was, and Peleg now coming out of Eber, a faithful remnant of God's people leading to Abraham, is that right beside each other, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman were being extended. Right beside one another, in the same time period, under the same experiences, right beside them, the Lord's redemptive story was unfolding and fascinatingly where there would be separation and division brought through languages clans and geographies under the judgment of God in the tower of Babel we're told by Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 that it would be through the line of Peleg through Abraham unto the new testament that ultimately it will be the nations that he will ultimately touch all the families of the earth will be touched in and through this story of Abraham. Now what we actually see, I think, taking place then here is a kind of call to to mission. A kind of global portrait. If you can go back to that satellite view that was given to us under Japheth's uh, sons and nations, the fringes of the world... And you can trace forward to Genesis chapter 12 and see that Abraham emerges out of this line coming from Peleg. You begin to realize that Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, will say that the gospel is to go forth to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and where? To the fringes of the world, to the uttermost parts of the world. Now when Jesus says that in Acts chapter 1, he's not making it up on the fly. He's building on what has been the global vision of God from the days of the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. As Peleg comes through Eber, as it leads to the covenant promises that are made to Abraham, that Abraham will be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that his name means father of nations of many nations. This picture of the blessing that's going to come forth from Abraham is going to go all the way to those fringes. To the 14 nations of Japheth that make up the hinterlands of the known world in the time of Moses. But it's even deeper than that in the midst of this text. Remember how we said the lineage of Ham? kind of zeroed in a little closer to the people of Israel. You see that big satellite view, the edges of the nations of Japheth, but when we zero in a little bit more, we see these enemies, Egypt, Philistia, Babylon. These are the nations always attacking the people of Israel. Well, what's interesting in in our passage is it's not just that the gospel will go out to the furthest stretches of the world, but that the gospel will even go to those who are our enemies. You see, we catch that in Jesus' final words to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. When he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to fall upon you. I'm going to ascend into the heavenly places. And as I am received into my session, into my power at the right hand of the Father in heaven, I'm going to send to you, my comforter, and you'll be clothed with power from on high. And you're going to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. Samaria you 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 guys remember samaria were i mean th- these were these these were the riffraff of society you know, these were the th- these were the mixed bloods the ones who were who had no fellowship with with israel who were considered enemies and antagonistic to the promises of god syncretistic in their religious practices they weren't true blue they 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 weren't of the Uh, The the DNA lines that they needed to be from. They were enemies of the people of Israel. And what Jesus is actually saying in Acts chapter 1 is that we're going to the uttermost parts of the world. But we're also going to the people that you often hate most. To the ones that are provoking you in the side. The ones who are constantly the enemies that as you watch them on the evening news. And certain ethnicities pop up. Certain types of people certain cultural distinctives that rub you wrong and that get you angry. Those is whom I'm sending you to. My message goes to them. It doesn't simply go to the outer regions of the nations of Japheth, but it goes to Egypt. It goes to Babylon. It goes to Cush. It goes to Ethiopia. It goes to the places that you would least expect it. Not only does it go to the to the outer fringes of Japheth but it goes to Philistia and the enemies of Israel it goes to all peoples do you see God's design through the work of Sham was to never just reject Japheth and Ham but through Sham draw Japheth and Ham in that his covenant blessings would go to Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts You see, God's design in working through Israel was in order to redeem mankind that the gospel would go to all. That the church would redeem for him a people through its preaching of the gospel from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Isn't it interesting how similar that is to clans and lands and languages and geographies? You see, the work of God globally in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, is the work of God globally in the New Testament. We just oftentimes forget it, as the people of Israel did. You know, when the disciples gathered with Jesus on the moment of His ascension, there in Acts chapter 1, do you remember the question they asked Him? Is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They were completely consumed with themselves. Is now the time that you will restore the glory of America? Right. That's the question. And he said, you know what he says? <laughs> it's not for you to know times and <laughs> places. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you will go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, when you are clothed with power on high, you won't be thinking prejudicial with your ethnicities. You won't be favoring certain languages or approaches in culture. You'll begin to love every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. You will go to the nations. You will be a people who will have my heart for mankind. You see, this passage calls us to a love for the nations and a call to mission to go to the nations. This very passage teaches us that we are a global people because we are marred with a God who is building a global kingdom. A kingdom, yes, that is not of this world. A kingdom that is made up of all the peoples of this world. A kingdom of men and women, boys and girls, white and black Of all kinds of nationalities and backgrounds. All kinds of political persuasions. All kinds of different convictions. He's making a people and he's drawing them unto himself. You see, this passage is deeply connected to what happened in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this was Jesus' mission from the beginning. And, And maybe the question that you're sitting with this day is thinking, well, how do we become a people like that? Or maybe you don't even want to become a people like that. Maybe a part of you just says, I can't wait till this is over so I can get back to my gated community. Maybe that's the impulse of your heart. You can own that before the Lord. This is a place from which to do that. The point of this particular text is to say when you begin to see what is the message of the gospel arising from this text, it will begin to melt your heart, not just for people who are different than you, but from the people who even hate you. Because that was the heart of Christ. You see, when Jesus was being crucified on the cross... And he looked out upon, across the throng of people who were made up of his own people, the Jews, and Roman soldiers who were nailing the nails. And his words to them were Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He was displaying for us a gospel that loves, yes, even its enemies and people who are so unlike us and different from us. Now, it may surprise you to think, well, I I just don't know. I don't know how to do that. I don't even know how to begin to have a heart that would want to go to Greece. A heart that would want to go next door or go to a community that's not like my own. Well, let let me just help you see that you've already experienced that love in Christ Jesus. Because do you see... The outermost regions of the world, the Japheth cities and clans, they're in and around the known world in the centuries that, that Moses was living in, does not even include the hinterlands that you live in. You're not even on the map. And the fact that you sit in a chapel in middle Tennessee... And hear a gospel from the table of nations is a sign that God has already gone to the nations for you. He's already gone to the nations for you. Better than that, the fact that it's you and me who sit in this chapel is testimony to the fact that He's not just gone to the nations, but He's gone to His enemies. And he has made his enemies his family. Because when you hated God, he demonstrated his love for you. And he died on the cross and that while you were yet sinners, he gave up his life for you. When we don't want to go to the nations and we don't want to love our enemies, it's just a picture of the fact that we haven't yet gotten the gospel we say that we believe. Because the gospel that we believe is a gospel that has already come to the nations. And a gospel that's already drawn in the enemies of the world into relationship with the Lord. Because you and I are here. We are in this room And so the moment that you want to turn away from that person that you don't like and rubs you wrong. And the moment you say no yet again to what you know the Lord is calling you to even though it's hard. I pray that this point becomes unforgettable and sticks with you the point that you again to realize, I can give the love that extends to the nation and the love that extends to enemies because I have been one who has received the love that has been extended to the nations and received a love that's been extended to the enemies. Friends, as we look at this passage together and consider its power and its glory, I simply ask that the Lord would confirm to us as His people on this Ascension Sunday that the Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne. And this kingdom will be built. It will be built. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if we don't live according to the heart and the love of God in this day, we will find ourselves very out of place when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. When we see every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnic clan, every language spoken, have you always just assumed that when you hear the angels sing, it's in English. It's going to be a remarkable, glorious picture of the nations. And the sooner that we embrace that call here, the more fit we become for the heaven that God has reserved for us. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would answer that call through this church. And through us, your people. And we ask, Lord, as I feel it in my own heart, that you forgive us for the ways in which we have fallen so woefully short of this call. And help us to know your grace and your mercy for all of our failings. And help us to know the joy of answering your call. So come and transform hearts more and more. And lead us into the work of loving the nations. Loving the enemies. Because we so love Jesus. We ask it in His precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.